Hello from the Marx Brothers Council podcast, and welcome to our holiday special. It's party time. Yes, another year's over, and so it's time to kick back and unwind with episode 30, which in our innocence we've opted to call K&R versus K&R. What the hoot does that mean, I hear you speculate? Well, all in good time. First, let's call the roll. I'm Matthew Conium, or if I'm not, I'm having a hell of a time with his wife. That was my first (laughs) Christmas joke, by the way. And here are two more. First, who was that lady I saw you with last night? That was no lady. That was Noah Diamond. Ah, what a ridiculous name. (laughs) And with him, the reason why the chicken crossed the road, Bob Gassell. Where's my bathrobe? (laughs) And to help beef up the show's Gentile quotient, we've invited an actor, a writer, a songwriter, a comedian, and a film historian. Sadly, none of these five men were available. You put that fucking thing down. (laughs) (laughs) So we've had to settle for Nick Santamaria. That's me. Hi, welcome, welcome, hello. Nick is making a return appearance. He joined us uh, for our big store special back in episode nine. And I had another listen to that one, and we didn't ask you your origin story. So before we go any further, can you recall when you first encountered the Marx Brothers and what that experience did to you? Hmm. Changed my life. I um, I remember it quite clearly. I was very young. I was not in school yet. And uh, my mom had some of the neighbor ladies over for a, sort of a luncheon. And they told me to get lost. So I went upstairs. I turned on our little black and white television set. And there was the last 10 minutes, are you ready, of Love Happy. Now, I had no idea who this guy was with the top hat and the wonderful <laughs> smile and this, this you know, middle-aged Groucho guy coming out. I had no idea, really, but I was captivated, uh, even by that, and um, talked to my dad about it, who explained who they were. And we looked at the TV guide and realized that on uh, the following Sunday, the coconuts was on. So uh, mm. it turns out that the first full Marx Brothers film I saw was their first film. So from the end of Love Happy to the Coconuts, that's probably the most unlikely one we've had yet in terms of forging a lifelong love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine what I would have thought by the end of Love Happy. It's, it's... <laughs> if you fast forward like five years and uh, every wall in my house was pretty much Marx Brothers, uh, Groucho's particularly, uh, my mother asked me once, she came up with a picture of Jesus Christ. And she says, you know, can't we just put up one picture of Groucho? I said, Mom, I understand he got very few laughs. So, no, I'm sorry. And that's a true story. I sort of envy the people who first encountered the Marx Brothers through some of their lesser vehicles, because you still had all the greatest pleasures ahead of you. It was only up from there. Yeah, rather than starting with the classics and then kind of getting the diminishing returns uh, experience. But it makes you wonder how many people would have been great Marx Brothers fans but came across one of these first and never returned. (laughs) That's an interesting point, yeah. Maybe, yeah. There must be people out there. I have to say, though, at that age, there wasn't much discernment. I I was just as excited when At the Circus was coming on television as I was when Duck Soup was coming on. So, you know, Mm -hmm. it's it's all perspective, really. So, K&R versus K&R. 
here we raise the very, very slightly thorny issue of Marx Brothers writers. Thorny because it's an article of faith among many that the Marxists were basically the people we see on screen. Harpo fully as wild, Chico fully as devious, Groucho fully as erudite, and all three every bit as funny. Accordingly, the fact that they had no official script input in their shows and films is to many an inconvenience, and the desire to suggest that they basically just riffed on their source material and were the unofficial architects of its final form remains strong. But the simplest comparison of, say, an Irving Brecker scripted title with a Karma and Ruby scripted one shows that at the very least they needed very good straw with which to make their bricks. Now, anyone who's heard the podcast before probably knows where we stand on the basic trajectory of the Marxist career. It's presumably no surprise that we prefer the Paramount films to the MGM ones, by and large. And what's more, such is the general consensus too. So it would be flogging a dead horse feather to compare the scripts of their first films with those of their last ones, and a foregone conclusion as to which would emerge the superior. But what about comparing like with like to see if we can decide who were the best of the best, who were the cleverest, funniest, most in tune with their performers of all the Marx writers? Now, a very many excellent writers contributed to their best material. Great and important names like Will B. Johnston, Nat Perrin, Arthur Sheikman, S.J. Perelman. But in terms of quantity and consistency, it's surely not too controversial to nominate two pairs of writers as the all-time champs, George S. Kaufman and Maury Riskind, and Bert Kalmer and Harry Ruby. Kaufman and Riskind, Kalmer and Ruby, K&R and K&R. But who were the best of the best? And that's why we're calling this episode K&R versus K&R. Like Kramer versus Kramer with laughs. Before we get deeply into this topic, however, here's a small addendum to our last show, which you may recall was devoted to the subject of A Night at the Opera. Now, A Night at the Opera is of especial interest in terms of this discussion because both pairs of writers worked on it, but successively rather than synchronously. Karma and Ruby wrote an early draft from which the eventual script was adapted by Kaufman and Riskind, with the latter pair replacing many of the original contributions. What's interesting, however, is that some of these substitutions occurred pretty late in the day, and a lot of material that we might reasonably attribute to Karma and Ruby remains in the shooting script, but not in the film. Most notoriously, the original Burning Opera House finale. Now, some of you may remember that when we did our show devoted to At the Circus, we recreated the famous lost courtroom scene that originally introduced Groucho's character. And we received many, many messages and emails from listeners all over the world begging us never to do anything like that again. So with that in mind, we've decided to recreate the lost Night at the Opera finale. And for this recreation, we're delighted to be joined by Nick Santamaria as the stage manager, Kathy Beale as Mrs. Claypool. Hello, Kathy. Hello. And Pete Lutz as Laspari and the Mayor. Hello, Pete. I'd like to say thank you for offering me this opportunity to be here today, but I can't. <laughs> now, there's a degree of mystery as to when this ending was abandoned and replaced, but unlike the circus courtroom scene, or for that matter the horse feathers fire, it doesn't appear to have been filmed, though it is, as I said, in the shooting script. It originally went something like this. The climactic night at the opera begins more or less as we know it from the finished film, though instead of compelling the orchestra merely to play Take Me Out to the Ball Game, Chico and Harpo also engineer unwitting renditions of I'm Just Wild About Harry and You're the Top. We also see Harpo inserting into the score the sheet music of that highly Marxian number, Waltz Me Around Again, Willie. Groucho's summing up of all this is, you know, if opera wasn't dead already, two fellows like that could kill it. 
There are also some deleted sight gags, eliminated possibly on Thalbergian realism grounds, in which Harpo blows his trombone and various items such as tennis balls and balloons come out of the end. Chico then produces a gun and shoots the balloons in mid-air. I think it's more than reasonable to detect the hand of Karma and Ruby here. Now, it's at this point that things get very different. When you next watch the final scene of the movie, you'll notice that there's a real campfire burning on the stage. In this version, we see sparks from the fire rise through the air and land between the boards of the roof over the stage. They begin to smolder, then to smoke, and finally to catch light. Hiding in the rafters, Harpo looks up, sniffs, and pulls away one of the boards to reveal a raging furnace within. He takes a bag of marshmallows from his pocket, breaks a splinter off one of the boards, sticks the marshmallows onto it, and begins to toast them on the fire, handing one each to Groucho and Chico. Well, boys, we've got a nice problem. Do you want to go down there and get arrested, or stay up here and get burned? Some of the burning boards fall and land in the backstage area, causing excitement among the stagehands. Turn in an alarm, quick! Okay, but don't let him stop singing, or there'll be a panic. On stage, Laspari begins to smell the smoke and looks uneasily about him. The audience also notice it and start to get restless. Backstage, the fire is now beginning to burn freely. A curl of smoke creeps onto the stage, and Laspari stops singing and flees. On the way out, he bumps into Mrs. Claypool. Signor Laspari, you cannot do this. If we drop the curtain, there will be a panic. What do I care? Do you think I'm going to stay here and get burned to death? As the whole company begins to desert, Groucho steps onto the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, there is absolutely no danger. The fire is in the next block. While we are waiting for the performance to go ahead, I will, uh, tell you a couple of very funny stories. (laughs) Backstage, the stage manager wonders what to do now that his principal singers have fled. What'll I do? Pull down the curtain? Oh, I don't know. Mr. Driftwood! And the Irishman says, that was no lady, that was my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha ha, maybe you didn't get the point. Uh, Look, he can explain it to you. (laughs) The performance is now going on. With a wave of the hand, Groucho turns and greets Ricardo and Rosa, who are making their entrance already in song. Groucho continues to address the audience as he backs towards the wings. Remember, you have my personal guarantee that there is no danger. The fire is out, and there is no danger. Groucho has backed right into a piece of burning scenery, which a firefighter is attempting to extinguish. And in the words of the screenplay, his fanny is scorched. He backs away with his hands covering the warm spot on his behind. Absolutely no danger. Thank you very much. Say, fireman, put a little right here, please. That's fine. I'll do the same for you sometime. Meanwhile, Harpo has remembered that Gottlieb is still locked in his backstage office and heads up the stairs to free him, momentarily delayed by one of the firefighters. Hey, you can't go up there. It's dangerous. Harpo leaps into the smoke-filled office and picks up the prostrate Gottlieb. He carries him from the room, fighting his way past smoke and flame, then sees a dog, almost overcome by smoke. He drops the body of Gottlieb, picks up the dog, and carries it to safety. Say, is this what you risked your life for? Hey, come back here, you idiot! Harpo rushes back into the smoke, but reappears almost immediately, staggering and carrying a chair, which he promptly sets down and collapses into. Well, I hope that's all now. Harpo snaps his fingers in recollection and darts off again, finally re-emerging with Gottlieb. My boy, I want to congratulate you. If that was anybody but Gottlieb, you'd be a hero. (laughs) 
We cut to Harpo, Chico and Groucho, immaculately dressed, again on the steps of City Hall. Around them, with smiling faces, stand Henderson, Gottlieb, Mrs. Claypool, Ricardo and Rosa. The mayor speaks to the cheering crowd. And at the risk of their own lives, these men averted a panic and saved 3,000 people. And so, my friends, I take great pride in conferring honorary citizenship upon these magnificent heroes. We will first hear from Signor Tommaso. Harpo whips out a pair of scissors and snips off Gottlieb's beard. At the same moment, Chico quickly smears a little glue over his chin. Harpo pastes on the beard and commences to drink a glass of water. Well, this is where I came in. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, who let that manicurist in here? (laughs) (laughs) So there we are, the original ending of A Night at the Opera. Eliminated, according to the established story, for the same reason as the equivalent scene in Horsefeathers, because fires in crowded theatres might spook the actual audiences in the actual crowded movie theatres. I'm sorry, I got the impression that this was dropped because of all the mishaps on the road tour. (laughs) Quite possibly. (laughs) What's interesting about this scene, as I said, is that it doesn't appear to have been filmed. But the little tag scene we've also just performed with the mayor was filmed. And there's a still to prove it. You can see it on page 113 of my annotated Marx Brothers, which you've all got. It looks like the scene with the aviator speech. But this time, Margaret Dumont and Kitty Carlisle are present. And the brothers are wearing expensive suits and shiny top hats. However, the point of this scene is that they're being commended for saving the theatre audience from the fire. So either they changed the script and had them being commended for something else. Or, more likely, I think, they shot it early in the shooting schedule at a time when they were still intending to shoot the fire sequence. This would explain its loss also from the film and mean that the substitution of the spectacularly inventive finale that we now have was made very late in the day indeed. Interestingly, the aviators scene in the original script also gives Chico an entirely different speech, which you will now hear being performed by Nick Santa Maria. We're determined to get our money's worth out of him. Ready? <clears throat> My friends, how we happen to come to America is a great story, if I could tell it. When we first start out, We have no idea you give us this great reception. And when I say we are not entitled to this reception, I know more about that than you do. So instead, I tell you how we get these medals. You think we got these medals for flying, but you're wrong. The medals come with the suit. First we get the suit, then you got the medals. The only question is how to get the suit. That is the whole secret of flying. And once you get inside the flying machine, remember this. He takes a golfing stance. Keep your head still, the left arm stiff, and a follow through. He completes the swing, hands clenched together as though holding a club. At the completion of the swing, he hits Henderson squarely in the face with his two hands and knocks him down. Nick, can you talk backwards for about four seconds? (laughs) Who killed Laura Palmer? So there we are, some distinctly Calmer and Ruby-flavoured differences between the shooting script and the finished version of A Night of the Opera. Ponder that at your leisure, but before we leave the matter, thanks again to our two guest performers. Cathy Beale is a name that will doubtless be familiar to many of you, not least from her participation in Noah's revival of I'll Say She Is, which probably seems like it was a million years ago now. We need a revival of that now. A revival <laughs> of the revival, because I'd love to see it myself. I'd make a special trip to New York to see that. Well, that's all I needed to convince me. 
Actually, though, that does have some relevance to the, the conversation we're about to have regarding what, if anything, Kaufman and Riskin brought to the Marx recipe that was definitive. Because I think you say in your book, Noah, that as you were adapting Alsatia's, the most fundamental absence in it, uh, so fundamental that it needed rectifying, was, was the absence of a clear Dumont figure. There was a kind of a latent one, a, a nascent one in the character Cathy played, which you expanded and made more prototypically Dumont-esque. That's true. Yes, I felt that that was okay to do because a Dumont-like dowager figure had existed in the Marx Brothers' work uh, previous to Alsatia's, uh, in vaudeville often played by Saba Shepard, who appeared with the Marxes for years. As Groucho put it, he said, I always had a big lady to act against uh, in the act. <laughs> so, now in Alsatia's specifically, there was no such figure, but there was a character named Ruby, who was the social secretary of the ingenue, and played a somewhat Dumont-like role in the narrative in that she was the confidant of the uh, the heroine and sort of like the um, um, guardian or custodian figure uh, who Dumont plays um, to Arabella Rittenhouse as her daughter in Animal Crackers um, and elsewhere. So I thought, okay, we'll take this not very interesting character who's the social secretary and just make her the ingenue's aunt and guardian instead. And it was a way to get this kind of crucial ingredient um, into Alsatia's. And as anyone who saw the show knows, nobody better than Kathy Beale. Uh, Dumont herself not being with us anymore. Uh, only Kathy. So, Kathy, can you remember how you got involved with the, with the project? <laughs> how long do you have? Uh, <laughs> all right. So, Noah and I had been on each other's radar because of uh, the website Why a Duck and a mailing list off of it called The Duck List that was run by the man who inspired me to move to New York City. Uh, and Noah and I met actually physically when Noah did a radio program, Groucho on the Air, and I went out to Brooklyn and we knew who each other was. And much like Chico and Harpo exchange salamis when they meet in a night at the opera, we each gave equivalent gifts to each other when we physically met, which was which was quite wonderful. Hey. Anyway, so I saw I saw snippets of the script while Noah was working on it, and I was, oh God, please let this be my part, please. <laughs> yeah, and that was years before it happened. And uh, yes, uh, Kathy and Mikhail Aline were the first two people outside of my own household who uh, who were aware of the Alsatia's project. So Kathy really was giving feedback on the very earliest drafts of the adaptation and was really from the ground up a part of that project. Just reassure us that it, it will be back in some form. Yeah, if it was up to us, it would be back right now. I mean, uh, we've gotten in the habit of saying, ah, oh, if it was up to us, there'd be a show tonight. But of course, there are no shows of any kind these days. But but yes, we fully intend to do more of I'll Say She Is. And as often in show business, um, disappointingly enough, it's just a matter of money. Um, but the capital will come along and one way or another, I, I, I'm sure I'll Say She Is will be back on stage. And by the way, it's centennial is not that far off now. Um, so, you know, the mm. 2024 uh, being the year of I'll Say She Is is still something to think about. And playing Las Barry and the Mayor was Pete Lutz, also no stranger to Marxian recreation. Pete, tell us about your latest project. Well, I have to say thanks to uh, Bob and Noah and Matthew for inadvertently inspiring me to write this because I started listening to the Council podcast 
earlier this year. And while I was listening to it, it's, it struck me that I could write a, a, a Marx Brothers comedy. I could, I really could. Because, and so I came up with one that uh, was specifically for um, the uh, uh, Halloween time frame called Do I Spectre? I'll Say I Do. And it is um, a, a Marx, Marxian audio comedy uh, that has uh, Marx Brothers soundalikes, of course, in, uh, in a situation where Groucho, the Groucho character is a ghost hunter, and his name is uh, Woodrow Fillmore Protoplasm. And you have friend of the podcast Les Marsden involved. I do. He was. I was so lucky to get him. He plays uh, both the Chico and the Harpo character. He gave me the whistles, the Harpo whistles that are so wonderful, and did a terrific job as the Chico character, whose name is uh, Salvatore Rigatoni. And, so, um, where can people hear this? People can find it by subscribing to uh, my feed, either through iTunes or any podcatcher. Uh, uh, it's Narada Radio Company Audio Drama. Narada is N-A-R-A-D-A. So Narada Radio Company Audio Drama. Uh, subscribe on your podcatcher and then scroll back to the October time frame and you'll see it. It's called Do I Spectre? I'll say I do. I do have a Night at the Opera related uh, a question or two before we... Yeah, yeah, I, go for I it. finally finished hearing the Andy Marks podcast today. I was listening to it in chunks. And I, uh, I have comments on two of the questions that were left hanging. Is there a place you like people to post comments? You want me to tell you what I think right now? And then you tell me where to put yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> why uh, Laspari gets his uh, gets attacked when he comes across the two lovers in the room? Because he uses the word boudoir. He's making, and he is in, he's implying something about what they're about to do, that there's something that there's something naughty going on here. I swear to God, that's what it is. All right. He's like impugning Rosa's intactness. I don't know, whatever. So, I mean, I, I address this. He's basically stowed away and come across the ocean, you know, to be with her. She better be putting out. Well, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, that's, that's why Ricardo punches him. Yeah. I think he just wants to have a fight. Ah, yeah. for any excuse. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. That's not why Ricardo was there. Yeah. Uh, but there's also there's, oh, no, there's and then there could be you know the overcompensation like hair because that's a way of confirming that yeah there's something going on here. I mean I I yeah. was in a cast once that oh what did you break your leg we to, <laughs> right well everybody had we had, we were in this one gigantic uh, room and one of the leads was accused of having an affair. Uh, and he was, he just got his dander up and he was like to punch the daylights out of it. Well, I happen to know he was in fact stumping somebody. I mean, he had told me, you no. know, and so he just went <laughs> way overboard. So there's that element too. At any rate, it has to do with it hit too close and there's some impugning. Yeah, I get it. I just wish they had done something a little less subtle uh, right there. Uh, Les Barry should have been a real a-hole to justify the punch. Well, there is an extra line in the script that doesn't appear in the film. Um, Lasparri says, um, permit me to withdraw in a boudoir to our company through a crowd. Ricardo says, what do you mean by that? Rosa says, Ricardo, please. And then Lasparri in the film just says, surely I've made my meaning clear. In the script, he says, surely I've made my meaning clear. Permit me to congratulate you on your taste. Well, that <laughs> oh. is a little more... Okay, and what was you had another question? Well, okay, Noah, you uh, there's a song that a, a melody that Gracho is singing, and you said it was sort of like my Bonnie Lies oh, Over the yes. Ocean. 
I'm wondering if I haven't had a chance to check this out. Is it Old Folks at Home by Stephen Foster? No. Uh, old Folks at Home. I- a few other listeners have responded to that. It is apparently a song called uh, The Sun Rises Over the Mountain or something like that. It was The Moon, the comes, moon over comes Over the Mountain. Over the Kate mountain. Smith, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. When the moon comes over. Yeah, the yeah that's yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. That's it. That's yeah. it. Okay. Yeah, we've had. When he's riding Three on the or trunk. four yeah. uh, sharp listeners have have responded to that. Um, it's wonderful, by the way, to have a venue where you can say, "I don't know what Groucho's singing," and three or four people get in touch to say, "Well, that's Kate Smith's hit." When the sun comes, when the moon comes over the mountain, but uh, "Sing Ho for the Open Highway" remains a mystery. So, once again, thank you very much, Pete Lutz, thank and you thank very you very much, much. Kathy Beale. Happy, happy. So, Kaufman and Riskind, and Karma and Ruby. Of the two pairs, it was Kaufman and Riskind who got there first, and who many are inclined to credit with a good deal of formative influence as transformers of the brothers from a rather more ragged earlier act into the anarcho-sophisticates we all know and love. Should we be cautious here, though? Noah, if I can turn to you as our expert on the Marxes on the boards, can you tell us a little bit more about how the Marxes came into the Kaufman and Riskind orbit, what they were before and what they then became? Yeah, well, I'm on the record a lot um, deflecting credit from Kaufman and Riskind to the Marx Brothers themselves and some of their earlier writers, um, notably Will Johnstone on I'll Say She Is and Herman Timberg on on The Mezzanine, and a lot of things that have been often thought to have originated with coconuts and therefore with Kaufman and Riskind turn out to have been in place earlier. Uh, however, it's also undeniable that there were innovations that were introduced in the coconuts, and it particularly has a lot. It has a lot to do with Chico, um, and it also has a lot to do with which combinations we see the Marx Brothers in. Uh, through I'll say she is. You're usually dealing with the foursome, um, or the threesome, and the the guy on the side. Um, not that there weren't Harpo and Chico moments. Harpo and Chico functioned as a unit, and Groucho and Gummo or later Zeppo were usually paired up too. Uh, but the idea of the Groucho-Chico duologue, you know, emerges in the coconuts after the coconuts opened. In fact, why a duck as we know it isn't in the opening night script. Just the, the barest stub of a setup scene for the auction. Um, and so, Kaufman and Riskin perhaps share with Groucho and Chico themselves that innovation. Um, and by the time they get to Animal Crackers, you can see a lot of what was learned on the coconuts being codified into formula. Well, why a duck worked out great, so we're going to have a long um, Groucho and Chico dialogue scene. Um, also, Harpo and Chico as the outsiders and Groucho as the kind of satirical bastion of the establishment. That gets introduced in the coconuts, I suppose, although you can see its roots in the Napoleon scene. Uh, in I'll say she is. Even in On the Mezzanine, Groucho um, is a member of society and Harpo and Chico are interlopers. I think you can see in comparing the original play scripts of Coconuts and Animal Crackers um, that it was between those two works that Kaufman and Riskin figured out how to write for Chico. Uh, even in Coconuts, you can see they're, they're kind of figuring it out. But in, in the stage script of Coconuts, there's a lot of Chico humor that it feels like good writers trying to do dialect humor without knowing exactly what they're working with. In Chico's first scene, uh, the, the lobby scene in the original Coconuts, he just has all this garbled syntax. He says, like, I know me him and things like that. 
And Groucho repeats those questioningly. And Groucho says, well, you go out and come back in and start again, you know. And you can see there's a there's a knowingness about what the Marx Brothers are capable of. But Chico, as this vehicle for great absurdist humor, um, really doesn't flower until Animal Crackers. I think Kaufman and Riskin get credit for getting there first on a lot of these things. Um, and perhaps because all four of them worked on Animal Crackers, that's the vehicle that seems most imitated in the Kalmar and Ruby screenplays. What about things like the literary allusions, the you know the strange interludes, and so on? Is is that is there any precedent for that before uh, Kaufman turns up? Yeah, a little bit less so. I mean, there's definitely um, in the Napoleon scene. There's some you know uh, obscure references and uh, what, what at the time were probably commonplace pop culture references, but now seem very deeply buried. There's a little bit of that. There's no doubt about it, though. As much credit as Will B. Johnstone deserves, uh, Kaufman was uh, several steps beyond him in terms of literary sophistication, and he used Groucho in particular as a vehicle for that. As far as um, the uh, references, the literary references in uh, early comedy, it's interesting because not only did we learn about classical music from Warner Brothers cartoons, pretty much, but People like the Marx Brothers uh, spoofing Strange Interlude, or I'll even bring up uh, the Ritz Brothers or Danny Kaye. Every reference was about opera or ballet or something as you know equally high in the arts. It was much more attainable then, and there was much more interest in it then. I just wanted to add that as a cultural side note. You know, like something like the Anvil Chorus. I mean, the Marx Brothers imitate the Anvil Chorus constantly it's in coconuts and animal crackers and it preceded that those two shows a lot too that was one of their bits going into the anvil chorus off usually off of some percussive action in the scene um now that comes across now as a sort of elevated reference oh an an opera reference but really in the 19 teens and 20s this was a very popular reference it mm. was not uh that, yeah. that was not a highfalutin thing to refer you to you were hearing it on the radio Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very populist uh, uh, mu- piece of music for mm-hmm. them to refer to then. Yeah. yeah. So when we look at Kaufman and Riskin's work, uh, not for the Marx Brothers, do we see uh, sort of significant similarities there? Or are they, right, when they write for the Marx Brothers, are they writing something very, very different? I mean, I'll open up by uh, confessing that I've neither seen nor read of the I Sing, um, to my shame. Is is that is I mean I know I know there's something that they wanted to make a film of and tried to do a couple of times, but uh, are there any genuine similarities? I saw a televised version in the 1970s, uh, starring Carol O'Connor as Wintergreen and uh, Jack Guilford as uh, I forget the vice president's name uh, in the show. But I really, other than a few Harpo-like things from uh, the vice president. Um, it's basically a 1930s musical comedy, you know, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, Love is sweeping the country. That's mm-hmm. that pretty much explains it. You know, it's, it's very uh, romantic. Uh, it's very satirical. Um, but I don't I whenever I read about the Marx Brothers making a movie of it, I, I keep thinking of room service. You'd have to adapt it. You'd have to you'd have to change it. Yeah, I guess the main question is whether Kaufman and Riskin would have been involved in adapting it for the screen. Uh, mm-hmm. That way, it might have had a fighting chance. Um, you know, Riskin was once quoted as saying, "It's just as well that the Marxists never made a film out of it." So, 
Take that for what it's worth. It, w- it probably would have lost whatever it is that makes of the I Sing interesting. In, in order to make it into a Marx Brothers vehicle, you would have had to convert it away from being of the I Sing, which, as Nick says, is a solidly written, satirical, romantic 30s musical comedy. Mm-hmm. I think the, the Kaufman and Riskin collaborations that were not written for the Marx Brothers, and there's a lot of them. They wrote eight plays in 10 years together. Um, they're They're far more conventional. They're more structured. They make sense from a plotting point of view. They draw the audience's interest in. Um, it's, Kaufman is never terribly sentimental, but it's much more human mm-hmm. kind of character writing. Uh, the times when I detect uh, more of a Marxian voice coming from Kaufman is when it's his own voice, N- not in the plays, but in his humor columns in some of the sketches and casuals that he wrote for The New Yorker and Mm -hmm. for the humor magazine Life. I would say that for everybody, every writer, because if you look at anyone who wrote for the Marx Brothers, you look at their other pieces, they were writing for the Marx Brothers. I mean, Mm -hmm. how could you not? How could you not? Yeah, that that must be right. But it's interesting, isn't it, that the Kaufman and Riskin, you know, turned up when they were a relatively unknown quantity. I mean, they just had that one big Broadway hit, but it would be reasonable to suppose that somebody like like Kaufman wouldn't likely have been too aware of them prior to that. Um, So it's interesting to speculate on on what the sort of alchemy, because although he also wrote very funny plays, Kaufman was also an extremely witty man and his reputation as a wit was rather like Groucho's. So you can imagine, you know, when they sort of encountered each other, it feels almost like, um, you know, like a chemical reaction. They sort of recognized each other in each other. Or is that is that going too far? No, it was a good fit. I think it was recognized by others, too. And Kaufman himself was, I think some of this was a public stance, but some of it was genuine. Kaufman was very reluctant to write for the Marx Brothers because it was so obvious. And during that summer of I'll Say She Is on Broadway, um, there was a sense that it was inevitable that they were going to work together. And uh, Percy Hammond, who you may remember, had given the Marxes some very unflattering reviews in the vaudeville years. Now that they were big, Hammond was in New York in 1924, um, writing for one of the New York papers. And Hammond was almost, um, there, there was almost a sadistic element in the way he was constantly pushing the brothers and Kaufman together. Um, and Hammond started this kind of feud in the papers, talking about how Groucho and Kaufman resembled each other. Oh, and um, Kaufman didn't take kindly to that, I remember. Both men took serious offense, <laughs> and uh, some listeners may recall that Nick provided a beautiful Kaufman voiceover in my uh, my Home Again presentation, which is Kaufman reading uh, some of his objections to being compared physically with with Groucho. Your your Kaufman voice is the Kaufman voice in my head, Nick. Ever since, <laughs> thank then. you, Noah. Thank and, you. Uh, but he but he went along with it. He he he. I don't mean Nick. I mean Kaufman. He I did he sort of accepted that he was <laughs> conscripted by fate. <laughs> But I think Kaufman's own voice, when he's writing satirical commentary, that sounds like Groucho. And that's how you know, oh, that's why everyone thought this guy had to write for them. The similarities between them just might be the one of the main reasons Groucho never fit in at the Algonquin Roundtable. Oh, you yes. Know? It, they were very similar. And I'm sure with Groucho, very competitive. 
So yeah. if Groucho had been class- a writer, he might have been Kaufman. You know, if Groucho yeah. had decided, yeah. oh, being a playwright, that's my thing. Uh, it's an, also an interesting exercise to, although the other Kaufman plays don't really feel like Marx Brothers comedies, if particularly Groucho had been more of a straight actor, you know, it's fun to cast him in other Kaufman roles. Uh, you know, I mean, that Lawrence Vale, the character Kaufman himself played in Once in a Lifetime, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Groucho could have done that. It's not like the familiar Groucho character, right. but neither is 20th Century, mm. uh, which he did in, in Maine, you know, by Hecton MacArthur. Um, I was just reading some of these brief sketches and, and comedy skits that Kaufman wrote. Um, and there, where there's a more, a broader tone than in his proper plays, you sometimes find little Marxian pockets, um, mm. like this when sketch men, called Meet the Audience. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. When, 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 when men, men play, men play cards, cards as like women, women do. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or this sketch called Meet the Audience, which I don't think has ever been performed faithfully because the final stage direction demands that the audience be shot <laughs> with guns. Um, but it's a, it's a marriage a proposal. <laughs> it's a marriage proposal between uh, two characters named uh, Mr. Winterbottom and Miss Titlebaum, and they confuse each other's names. Mr. Winterbottom, Miss Titlebaum, Mr. Titlebottom, Miss Winterbaum. You know, you can kind of smell a, a Marxian flavor there. Mm-hmm. Or even Shakespeare. <laughs> or even Shakespeare. <laughs> I think he said that to Nathan Hale. At one point. Yes, he did. <laughs> Funnily enough, I was watching um, If uh, Men Play Cards As Women Do yesterday in that Bob Hope movie. Uh, I can't think what it's called. Um Star Spangled Rhythm. I'd seen it that a couple of times before I even knew that it that it was a Kaufman uh, piece. It's it's um it's politically iffy these days, I think, but um but very very funny, I think. <laughs> you know, when we did the Groucho Chico episode a few months ago, we might not have emphasized enough the fact that Kaufman and Riskin were were really the only ones that could do these Groucho Chico scenes justice. It um, seems to be their innovation, definitely. But you're talking about a crosstalk routine, which had been done yeah. in you know minstrel shows during the 1860s. Um, my problem with those, I, I I really do enjoy Why a Duck. I think mm-hmm. it's a beautifully written scene, and uh, despite the wet map, I think it's a, a very well played scene. Um, I can't say the same for the one in Animal Crackers. I think it's hilarious up until maybe two thirds are passed. And then when Groucho says bread pudding, I feel the same way. It goes on <laughs> way too long. And it's, I don't, I, it, it's too long a routine and I could watch who's on first a hundred times in a row and still laugh and enjoy it. Uh, the one in animal crackers is lacking in my opinion. Well, you know, it is literally pointless. I mean, that that's probably its strength as well as, as its weakness. But Totally agree. Why Duck, and it comes in so late as yeah. well. Yeah. Why a oh, Duck yeah. is a lot more like the contract scene in Night at the Opera. There's yes. lots of digressions and departures, but it does have a narrative role to play. Mm-hmm. It has to set up the uh, auction scene, just right. like the contract scene has to set up the whole rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. But they are sitting down to solve this crime together. You know what I mean? So it is sort of... Uh, prescient uh, during the film. I just think in general, that film goes on 20 minutes too long for my, for my taste. And uh, I do agree. I, 
I take your point entirely. I just I love being tortured by them, as I have said before. <laughs> um, I think they were stalling uh, for twenty minutes, waiting for Zeppo to show up again. <laughs> <laughs> just getting back briefly to the the kind of symbiotic relationship between Kaufman and the Marxism, particularly Kaufman and, and Groucho. Um, there's a there's a line which is probably apocryphal, and I'm probably going to get it wrong anyway. And Nick will know the right one, and he'll jump in and tell me off. But something like Ginger Rogers said of Fred Astaire, I, I gave him sex and he gave me class. And um, he's actually said about her, uh, said about them. I forget who said it. I, oh, Catherine Hepburn. Right. Catherine Hepburn said this. Right. Yeah. He gave her class. She gave him sex. So you can see something like that happening with, with Groucho and Kaufman, you know, the, the appeal to the Marx Brothers of being written by these, these uh, absolute giants of Broadway writing. Uh, what a step up that, that represents. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be a, an obvious um, attraction for him. Um, was Kaufman also getting something out of it in terms of a kind of a, a street level authenticity that he might not have had before? Perhaps. I think he was definitely getting success. I mean, the Marx Brothers shows that he worked on were huge smashes, and not everything Kaufman touched turned to gold. But, you know, uh, Riskin said that Kaufman was the most brilliant and the most basically unhappy person he ever met. And, you know, Kaufman does not seem to have enjoyed any of this. It's another connection between him and Groucho, a, a basic sense of discontent. And I don't think Kaufman, he just relentlessly worked. And when he finished one project, he started the next one with no ceremony or, or sense he was of... Let's the Woody Allen of his day. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he didn't go to the cast party, you know. He, he went home to write the next one. And mm -hmm. I think that's who Kaufman was, you know, mm -hmm. elementally. And, uh, and so those, those Marx Brothers projects were... Anyone else would look back at them and say, well, those were the big hits anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, not the only ones, but they were certainly successes. But Kaufman doesn't seem to have enjoyed success for its own sake in that way. So that's off the list. Mm -hmm. He seemed to be pretty much annoyed uh, and burdened by everything. Mm -hmm. He likes sex. He did enjoy sex mm -hmm. and bridge. Oh, the bridge scene in Animal Crackers. That might be the, the scene that is most... You know, in elsewhere in Kaufman's work, that's maybe the scene that you would most likely encounter. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, sex, bridge, and and writing, and and relentlessly working. Mm -hmm. Yep, all at the same time. It's also <laughs> true that Kaufman had a kind of um, you know he was always represented on Broadway. He had for like more than thirty years, there was not a single Broadway season that didn't have something written and or directed by George Kaufman. Mm -hmm. So one play on that resume almost can't mean very much. Well, lots more on Kaufman and Riskin to come, but let's let's bring in our other pair now. Uh, Kalmar and Ruby, by contrast, are the great architects of the Marxes on screen. But it's worth remembering that they too joined the party in the Brothers Broadway period and served the team as songwriters as well as gag men. They also wrote plenty of funny lines for plenty of funny men who didn't have the surname Marx. So Nick, can you bring us up to speed please on Bert and Harry? Well, Bert and Harry were um, vaudeville uh, guys. They came from the same world pretty much that the Marx Brothers did in that sense. Bert Kalmar was a magician from the age of 10, but he was also a dancer. He was quite a song and dance man as well. Uh, and he had a fairly long career until he, uh, an accident, I forget what happened, but he hurt his leg and uh, that pretty much spoiled his dance career. And he became 
a lyricist. Harry Ruby was uh, working as a pianist for a trio in vaudeville. And uh, the two of them met up and started writing together. Harry had written with a few other people beforehand, but this is the one that clicked. And uh, I think it was 1920 that they made it official that they were a songwriting team. And uh, I, I think the most important thing they did before uh, their association with the Marx Brothers was um, the Ramblers, uh, which was made into the Cuckoos later uh, in 1930 at RKO. But uh, it starred Clark and McCullough, Bobby Clark and Paul McCullough, who were often compared to the Marx Brothers on stage. Now, I don't I don't know uh, if it was just Bobby Clark running around with a cigar and, you know, the fake glasses painted on and his frantic pace, but uh, they were the act that was most compared to the Marx Brothers on stage. So they had that beforehand. I think about their contribution to Animal Crackers as being very important uh, to the success of not only the show, but the film itself. Reading uh, the plays of uh, Coconuts, Coconuts I didn't like at all. I didn't like the play at all. I thought it was a, a, a rambling kind of almost too frothy, and you're just waiting for the Marx Brothers to come on. Um, not a great play. Animal Crackers better, uh, but because Kalmar and Ruby were writing the songs. That's my opinion anyway. Hooray for Captain Spaulding. What would we do without it? We're four of the three musketeers. Brilliant. Just brilliant. So anyway, they were part of that mix. Four of the Three Musketeers had only been used in the film. Mm-hmm. We would we would remember it as the Marx Brothers theme song the same way we remember Hooray for Captain Spaulding as Groucho's. Breaks my heart. Breaks my heart. But uh, but they went on uh, in between and, and during Marx Brother time. Uh, they wrote for Eddie Cantor. In fact, I think they wrote his best film, uh, Kid from Spain, uh, which has some hilarious stuff in it. I, I, I write on my Facebook post, um, uh, or I wrote on my Facebook post where he's showing, uh, the bulls that he had killed. You know, he's, he's a fake bullfighter. And, um, he talks about an accident that happened. The bull, he, uh, gored me and ripped out a piece of my face. He goes, Oh, a piece of your face. That must be terrible. Oh no, no, no. They grafted another piece on from another part of my body. Really? Where? From where? He goes, I don't know, but every time I'm tired, my face wants to sit down. <laughs> as good a joke as anything they wrote for the Marx Brothers, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, but anyway, they, they wrote for Wheeler and Woolsey, actually one of their best uh, films, actually a couple of their best films. But I don't think they wrote anything as memorable or as good as what they did for the Marx Brothers. They are responsible for writing my favorite Groucho joke from any movie, and also my favorite Marx Brothers scene of all time. And, and which are? my favorite Groucho joke is, uh, I tried to get a flat bottom, but the girl in the boathouse didn't have one. I'm sorry, but there's no more perfect joke than that. Uh, <laughs> and my favorite Marx Brothers scene doesn't include Groucho. It's Harpo and Chico checking in with Trentino at his office. I don't think it gets any better. Yeah. One of the reasons it gets hard to kind of cross uh, analyze these two teams is because, as you pointed out at the top of the show, Matthew, it's always a little dicey trying to definitively um, uh, attribute 
Marx Brothers material to specific writers. Right. Um, partly it's because the brothers themselves were so inventive. Um, but also, you know, Kelmar and Ruby worked with all these other great writers on those scripts, Sheikman and Perrin and Johnstone and Perelman, for God's sake. Um, so it's hard to really know. Whereas with Kaufman and Riskind, you know, at least with Coconuts and Animal Crackers, we can pretty much assume that they were largely responsible for right. what's on paper in those two scripts. Um, although I am reminded, I, I've been um, hanging my head in shame that in our in our last episode, we did three hours on A Night at the Opera, and I don't think we mentioned Al Bosberg. So I just would like to say <laughs> Al Bosberg. There you um, go. Al, if you're listening. Al, if you're listening. If you're in that bathtub, Al. <laughs> it may be another reason why Night at the Opera is kind of the best of all worlds, because there's plenty of great Kalmar and Ruby jokes that survived in that screenplay, but with the Kaufman and Riskin sort of well-made play structure. Mm -hmm. And Al Bosberg pretty much uh, doing what uh, I suppose John Grant did for Abbott and Costello. Right, Matthew? Just yeah. sort of taking the finished yeah. script and adding jokes and routines. Yeah. And as Nick said, of course, the, the one thing that we can definitively attribute to Karma Ruby are the songs. And not only are they brilliant, but there are so many of them. I mean, you can imagine songwriters maybe writing one or two great songs for the Marx Brothers. But, but Karma and Ruby are responsible for, for certainly from the, from the Coconuts period onwards, virtually every uh, great song that we associate with them. And I think if you mm -hmm. compare their songs with the other Marx Brothers songs, you're sort of looking like uh comparing wire duck with uh tootsie fritzy ice cream you know tootsie fritzy ice cream is funny mm -hmm. and uh yeah. lydia the tattooed lady is funny but those uh karma and ruby songs are the absolute gold standard and there are so many of them mm -hmm. and and all of them gems yeah. I, I can't think of one that's weak and absurd yeah, and the absurdity of the songs they're just you know one of my biggest disappointments i don't know how you felt about it about this, Noah, when you found this out, that Kalmar was the lyricist. I always assumed when I was a child, from, from the way Groucho talked about Harry Ruby, that Ruby came up with those amazing lyrics. It was mm -hmm. Kalmar. I was shocked. It is interesting, though, and, and I, they are, if not unique, unusual among songwriting teams. For They didn't normally break down that billing. It was always music and lyrics by Bert Kalmar and Harry Ruby. Mm -hmm. um, I always kind of liked that about them. They, they kept their process, even that basic information about their process. Mostly. Lennon and McCartney. Oh, sorry, Matthew. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> Yeah, like Lennon and McCartney. I, I do think there's a bigger difference. The, the same um, difference that you see between Kaufman and Riskin's Marx Brothers scripts and their non-Marx Brothers scripts, I see in Kalmar and Ruby's Marx Brothers songs and their non-Marx Brothers songs. Uh, I mean, nobody wrote songs for the Marx Brothers better than they did. Um, the rest of their catalog, although delightful, they were they were great songwriters and their entire catalog has lots of gems. They're one of my favorite teams. But again, much more conventional stuff that they wrote outside of the Marx projects. And there's even a little bit of uh, what I think of as the Ira Gershwin problem with lyrics where you have one perfect verse. So you put that up front. And then over a succession of verses, you have weaker and weaker Lyrics, more and more forced rhymes. They, they sometimes had a kind of um, the inverted syntax problem where you, you mix up the 
language so much in order to land on the word you want to rhyme. Um, there's one in uh, Why Am I So Romantic uh, that always kind of jumps out at me. Um, and now that I'm speaking into a microphone, it won't occur to me. Uh, Talking to the lamp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love light conversation. Ah, I know what it is. It's when we pet closer, your arms do hold me. Welcome to Awkward Town. Mm-hmm. Because cause you need to rhyme hold me and told me, you know. Uh, and one of, it's one of those things that just makes me think, ah, 10 minutes, you could have done better. You, you could have made that work. <laughs> it's also one of those lyrics I had to go back to make sure I was hearing what I was hearing, you know. <laughs> but it's a wonderful song. It really is a sweet song. It's, I love the song. Mm-hmm. But many of the best lines in that song are they rhyme and the rhythm works and they scan and they're singable. But mm-hmm. the syntax also works conversationally. Right. Uh, right. Whereas you would never turn to somebody and say, <laughs> when we pet closer, your arms do <laughs> But it is, I mean, uh, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan would stoop to things like that also. Oh, all the time. Yeah. yeah Gilbert and Sullivan were repeat offenders. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kalmar's heroes, by the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To the extent, actually, that one wonders if at the time that wasn't actually prized, that sort of thing, that I'm kind of sure very, that. very uh, heavy-handed structure. Mm-hmm. I think it was forgiven. It was forgiven because <laughs> uh, a lot of the the you know the great lyricists, like I, I mentioned, Ira Gershwin. Ira Gershwin was capable of coming up with a beautiful couplet, but. Mm-hmm. Only a couple per song, and the rest would be filler. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lauren's heart is like that too. I, I think um, the precision of later Irving Berlin and Cole Porter um, that got the next generation of songwriters to mostly abandon that sort of operetta holdover mm-hmm. of um, you know. Uh, well, let me um, just let me just say this: that Spanish castle <laughs> in my mind will be a love nest. The practical kind. Where the yeah. hell did that come from? That's Irving Berlin for crying out loud. <laughs> but wow. you know that's a, that's int- that's sort of doggerel, isn't it? It's not. It's not. Sing- it's not the syntax that's a problem there. It's no. just when you parse it, what what is he saying? What is <laughs> it's just nonsense. It scans. What well. you mean? You've never built a Spanish castle in your mind. <laughs> I have, but it was not the practical kind. No, it was not. <laughs> it was highly impractical. It, oh, my God. To heat that place? Forget it. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, but anyway, I think they're they're delightful writers. The closest to me that they came, uh, we're talking about Kalmar and Ruby. The closest they came, and this is interesting. I think I mentioned this in the last podcast I was on. Uh, Lord and Taylor. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) Do you know where I heard that, by the way, Uh, that whole story? Uh, By the way, if you want to know what we're talking about, go back to the Big Store uh, podcast. Uh, I told a story about how Lord and Taylor, Lord was actually a tribute to God made by Taylor, and it turned out to be false. I got it from Paul (laughs) Harvey, the rest of the story. Page two. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and like an idiot, I believed it. So anyway, my apologies. I forget what I was going to say about Calmer and Ruby. Oh, a movie called Life of the Party, uh, a B um, a B plus picture at RKO in 1937. 
Um, and it starred Joe Penner, uh, a guy named Gene Raymond, and Parkyakarkis, the Greek dialect comedian, the father of Albert Brooks and Super Dave. Um, Parkyakarkis could have been Chico. They could have been writing for Chico. Yeah. And the dialogue back and forth, I think it was between Gene Raymond and Milton Berle with Parkyakarkis in the middle giving the answers. And it was quite funny. And you could picture Chico doing it. So it'd be interesting to seek that out. Hey, I was thinking about that type of humor recently and looking over who, the celebrities who died this past year. And Norm Crosby came up and he was basically a dialect comedian without a dialect. Actually, yes. yeah, with the, with the malaprops. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, if you took out the, the dialect. Yeah. 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 He was the second best malaprop comedian, I think, that, that ever was. The first was Leo Gorsi. Mm. From the Bowery Boys film. Some of them are absolutely hilarious. His malaprops. And don't forget Carol O'Connor is Archie Bunker. Another one. He was great, too. He was great, too. Or Gracie uh, Allen. Gracie Allen or uh, from Duffy's Tavern. Ed Gardner was also very good at it. But anyway. Uh, so, yeah, Kalmar and Ruby were able to write for other comedians. I should say similar comedians because Parkia Carcass was from the same school Chico was from, only a better dialectician. It's just so hard for me. I don't know about you guys, but it's so hard for me to decipher exactly what is Kalmar Ruby material in these films. Like, do we know who wrote the swordfish scene? Was it them? It's it's really tough. Yeah, I had somebody uh, somebody wrote to me recently trying to pin down which lines could be attributed to Perelman in in Horse Feathers and Monkey Business. It's really hard to do. There's a couple of examples that are always cited. Waxing, like waxing Roth, yeah. But you know, for regiment leaves a door on that one. Yeah, ah, yeah. But for the vast majority of individual gags, who knows? Even if we could get those guys in the room now, they wouldn't remember. Mm -hmm. You're probably right. You're probably right. And that goes that it goes that way when you write uh, in tandem. You know, um, Matthew and I are writing a book right now, and uh, we've made sure to separate what we've written, so we never have this problem. <laughs> Oh, I'm Matthew just, told me he wrote all the good parts. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the reviews to come out. We loved everything Matthew Conium wrote. Mm -hmm. Who is this Nick Santa Maria? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're making it easy for them. You realize that. But anyway, I, I, I digest. I'm interested in how Carmine and Ruby became Marx Brothers regulars, because presumably they were hired for Animal Crackers to write songs. It was a one-shot deal. They wrote the songs. They went away. Presumably, they would have had nothing to do with the film at all if the decision hadn't been made by other people that they were going to cut most of those songs and add a new one. So then they would have been hired to, to write that new song uh, and again, gone away. Uh, and then somewhere along the line, they come back as not only kind of it, their in-house songwriters, but also also scriptwriters, and I, I'm wondering almost if that was coincidental or if somebody went back to Animal Crackers and thought, hang on a minute, these guys who wrote the songs also write gags and maybe maybe we could get hold of them. Well, I think you're forgetting... I don't know. I think you're forgetting a very important point and maybe the most important point uh, was Groucho's friendship with Harry Ruby and his appreciation oh, yes, course, for what he course. did. So. I think that's your yeah. answer. Yeah. I think that's your answer. What do you think? 
It might be notable that they didn't work on Monkey Business. I mean, you know, after the two Broadway shows and the two films based on them, Monkey Business emerges originally out of the writing staff for a proposed radio show, right? Yeah. That was that was Sheikman and Perrin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, we talked about that when we did our Monkey Business show. You know, when they came to Hollywood, it was basically all out with the old. Yeah. Uh, new writers, no Margaret Dumont, uh, Groucho not mm-hmm. really separated from his brothers. They, they were basically reinventing the wheel. They were going Hollywood. They went Hollywood. Right. Yeah. And then when Calmar mm-hmm. and Ruby rejoin the club for, for Horse Feathers and Duck Soup, in many ways, we're back to formula, back to yeah. Animal Crackers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a way, in a way, without the without the um, unnecessary, you know, side trips. Uh, mm-hmm. I love Coconuts and Animal Crackers mostly because we're getting an eye uh, into what they were like on stage. To me, that's invaluable. And those movies will always be special to me for that reason. But real Marx Brother movies, as far as I'm concerned, are mostly Horse Feathers and Duck Soup. Uh, I love it. You know, I'm going to edit that out. I'm going to edit that out. When you, when, before, when, before you hit that butt, it's your bean. Okay. <laughs> and then there's the big store, of course. Uh, no, but uh, uh, no, I really do think that those are the two quintessential Marx Brothers films. If you had to pick two to show people, those would be the ones for me. Anyway, the way I look at it, part of their uh, popularity is the fact that they have these different types of films. You know, you have duck soup and horse feathers for people like, the wacky joke, joke, joke. And you have a night at the opera and a day at the races for mm-hmm. you know, the people who like the structured films, like like Matthew's wife. So, you know, I, I, I really think they expand their appeal by doing different types. I tend to disagree, Bob. I think I think that uh, the Marx cult, whatever's left of it, uh, right. pretty much agrees with what I'm saying. I think those are the movies that people go back to the most. Well, um, that's why I've left Facebook because of people like you. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering why you were gone. <laughs> I noticed that empty space. But anyway, no, I, I feel like uh, they are the quintessential Marx Brothers films, um, mm-hmm. eliminating pretty much the lovers and, you know, the the importance of Ricardo getting on stage and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, wonderful movie. I think uh, A Night at the Opera, even more than the earlier films, tends to blend the two styles uh, yeah. in a much more palatable way. Um, but when it comes down to pure, unadulterated Marx Brothers, it doesn't get any better than Horse Feathers and Duck Soup. I'm, I'm sorry. And you're in and out. Uh, you know, they're a little over an hour. You're you're breathless by the end. And you see them do their best stuff. I think my only qualm with Duck Soup is I would have liked a Chico and Harpo solo, you know, musical solos. I miss them. I, they're, they're, well, before we go on to... Go on. No, no, go ahead. No, no, you. No, no you go ahead. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no you. you go. You no, go. you. Go. It's fine. All right, your turn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking till I see my lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we go on to opera then, which is uh, a pivotal film for, for, for both uh, teams, I will say this much. I mean, it's probably emerged clearly that Nick is very much in the Karma and Ruby camp. And to the extent that my two favourite Marx Brothers films are Animal Crackers and Coconuts, I'm in the, the, the Kaufman and Riskin camp. Um, however, I would certainly say that what 
uh, Carmine and Ruby bring to the act, to the team in in their uh, two films, it is invaluable. I I wouldn't for a second cast it aside. But more than that, I think if they had simply retained Kaufman and Riskind as their writers through their their first Hollywood films we probably would have seen a tailing off in terms of the film's energy. We would have yeah. seen a lot of repetition. Uh, we would have seen, uh, you know, very formulaic films, which whatever you think of them, uh, Horse Feathers and Duck Soup are not. And Horse Feathers and Duck Soup are extremely cinematic and they have a kind of an energy to them that the, the first two films don't. Now, again, I will, I will qualify that uh, and stress that although, yes, you are breathless at the end of Horse Feathers, I, I, I like to be more than breathless. I, I like to feel like I've been attacked. I like to feel like I've been beaten up by these men. So that's why... Would you like Animal to be Duck alone? Is, 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 is for me. <laughs> Guys, turn your heads you know, for just a moment. <laughs> I want to be able to tolerate no more of them, whereas horse feathers always leaves me a little bit hungry. But there's no question. That's a that, good that, thing, uh, though. That's a good thing. It brings you back for the next one. Of course, mm-hmm, of course. Mm-hmm. So that then brings up the mystery of opera. Um, Karma and Ruby are hired. They turn in a script which from what we can see of what they contributed was extremely good. Um, And then for some reason, according to some stories, at least Groucho rejects it. Certainly it gets largely rejected. And for the first time in five years, Kaufman and Riskind are brought back in. Now, is that simply because they were expensive and NGM had the, had the money to to throw at them or, or is there something more to it? I, it seems oddly disloyal of Groucho. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, there's a real mystery here. It's, it, it happened again on Go West. Kalmar and Ruby wrote a script. A superior script. Mm. And at that point, you know, a Kalmar and Ruby script for the Marx Brothers sounds like it could be the salvation of the team. Mm. But Groucho rejected it. It's unbelievable. Mm. It's unbelievable. I, I, um, I think a lot of it has to do with his respect for Thalberg. Groucho had like an almost obsessive uh, respect for that man. And I think he took to heart his lessons. And that might have been the residue from that uh, left over of him trying to carry that torch. That, that could be. It's as good an explanation as any that I can think of. Yeah. And the piggyback on that, I think the issue probably wasn't that uh, Kalmar and Ruby's stuff wasn't funny enough. It's just that they didn't have Kaufman's experience in writing you know, the, the characterizations and the dramatic beats that Thalberg was really looking for. Well, basically, I, I, I kind of group the Coconuts, Animal Crackers, and A Night at the Opera sort of in the same bag because the two are based on actual plays and are very theatrical in presentation. And A Night at the Opera has the same kind of structure uh, right. of those plays. You have the young lovers, you have something at stake, you know, other than can we get off the ship? Um, so yeah, I, they, they were definitely stronger in that sense. And in, in being so, we're probably more attractive to Thalberg. Maury Riskind in his memoir, uh, I Shot an Elephant in My Pajamas, uh, he says that the 
the concept, uh, the formula for Night at the Opera um, and later Day at the Races of, of block comedy scenes, what were referred to as block scenes, mm-hmm. connected by musical numbers and, and plot advancing scenes, uh, that that was Kaufman's formula on Coconuts, too. I mean, Riskin seems to suggest that although there were more writers on Night at the Opera, um, mm-hmm. the the feeling and the approach, it was the same mm-hmm. kind of writing experience and the same kind of collaboration. And it's interesting, isn't it? It's the first of their films since Animal Crackers to be structured like a play, um, not least because it was, mm-hmm. it was you know, tested as a, as a play. So suddenly all the cinematic rhythm that, that, that had built up through the three Hollywood Paramounts is sort of put to one side again. And we're back to, to uh, chunk, 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 aren't we? And we we got to help a Rosa. Come on, Ruby, do seem bizarrely shortchanged from here on, doesn't it? I mean, they, they even, uh, you know, Day at the Races, they write one song. That's it. You know, they write a song. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's a song that Groucho loves so much, he spends the rest of his life singing it at the first possible opportunity. And it doesn't end up in the film. You got to wonder... I don't know what the answer to that is. I, I, it may. I think your theory is, makes the most sense to me of any explanation that I've, I've heard or thought of, which is that it had to do with this reverence for Thalberg. That although it served them well on opera and a little bit well on races, it, definitely by the last series of films, if they had shaken loose the Thalberg thinking a little bit, um, that might have been you know, might have led to better results. Mm-hmm. For Kaufman and Riskin, but really Kaufman, I think, was the in the driver's seat of just not ever wanting to leave New York mm-hmm. and therefore hard to get him to work on Hollywood projects. Yeah, yeah true. Yeah. And a, a lot of the work that um, Kaufman and Riskin did on opera, they did in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Kaufman only spent a week or two um, on the West Coast working mm-hmm. on that film. And uh, Simon Luvish quotes... Um, uh, some some Kaufman and Riskin notes. This is uh, Kaufman and Riskin say this in their notes on an early draft of Night at the Opera. Uh, we would like to cut out some weak jokes, such as La Tusca and Samson and Delilly. The La Tusca gag is quoted in Amazon. Uh, uh, Adamson too. Amazon. Amazon by Joe a- Joe Amazon <laughs> in Joe Adamson's book. He does tend to run it's on. It's a reference to. I guess it's a Kelmore and Ruby joke about La Tusca be described as the elephant opera. <laughs> yeah. So so that's the kind of humor Kaufman and Riskin are saying we'd like to cut out some weak jokes. It's jokes like these that have imperiled the position of the Marx boys, both on stage and screen, which is really significant. So they're they're kind of throwing some shade at not only Kalmar and Ruby, but Sheikman, Perrin, and all the stage writers who preceded them to the Marx Brothers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jokes like these have imperiled the position of the Marx boys on stage and screen, and which will kill them absolutely in time. Wow. We would give them puns, but new ones, and we hope good ones. So there's like an awareness here on Kaufman and Riskin's part that there's a an easy way to do this. There's a way to kind of mar- marks by numbers, you know, mm-hmm. just give them puns without much regard for standards and let their delivery sell the humor. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously what, especially Groucho is struggling mightily to do in the later films. Mm -hmm. I think about the years these films were made as well. Um, My favorite year years of movie making are 32 and 33. Those are my favorite films in general. Um, It was pre-code. It was anything goes. And I think uh, Kalmar and Ruby worked best 
under those circumstances. They may have gone for older jokes or whatever later on. Um, but during that period, I don't think there were any better comedy writers on, on film uh, during the pre-code era. Back when Eddie Cantor could do a joke about having his ass sewed onto his face. and Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> a deep-seated problem. But, uh, I, you know, it, 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 was, it was anything goes, 32 and 33. And boy, did they prove it with those two films. They were just wild, crazy, wild movies. Um, and basically, once, 19, once the code went away, things started becoming more standardized, more formulaic uh, in general. Uh, when you look at uh, film series, uh, you look at the Thin Man movies, uh, for instance, you know, as each one, each, each um, move, movie got made, uh, they were more and more formulaic as you went. You know, it, it just got that way. You, you started like the Dr. Kildare series and Andy Hardy. Forget it. The Marx Brothers don't have a chance in that atmosphere. I think what happened to them was a sign of the times, basically. And Groucho was notorious about being a tough sell on material. His radio career, I know we've all read about it. He was a monster and people hated dealing with him. Writers hated dealing with him. He was so persnickety and, and, and choosy about his material. Um, I, I suppose that uh, kind of transcended friendship uh, in his mind. And it's one of the reasons why he, he his style lent itself much better to plays and films where you would spend time developing the material, make it as good as possible and go out there well armed with surefire stuff. Uh, whereas radio and television, um, when, when Groucho did find success there, it was for largely improvised conversation because you can't write on a Kaufman and Riskin or Kalmar and Ruby at their best level every week. Mm-hmm. I had read somewhere recently, and I, I wish I could remember the source, but just to go back for a minute about uh, improvised conversation on You Bet Your Life, somebody found when, when the show broke down finally, somebody found cue cards thrown away. Uh, and it was not only the questions, it was the answers and the jokes and what the contestants should say and all that other stuff. Um, he played around a very tight script. Let's put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. But I still think it's not like having to come up with Animal Crackers level dialogue mm -hmm. on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. It's still short of that, you know. Yes. I I've actually seen the cue card that says, I like my cigar too, but I take it out once Really? I I've seen that card. <laughs> <laughs> I have it framed on my wall here. It's right here. <laughs> and isn't it sad, though, that he went from being somebody who was so... Um, fanatically obsessed with the quality of his material mm. that he would happily throw out a script by one of his best friends mm -hmm. to being somebody who, who just didn't care almost overnight so that he can write a letter to uh, some Cat Sheikman or somebody saying, you know, I'm going in to do rewrites on the big store mm. because the jokes weren't good enough and now I've got jokes that, that, that are even worse. And you just think, for Christ's sake, man, then, then get some better ones mm -hmm. done. You know, you, you must have must have that much clout at least mm. and and you know i mean particularly when you think that um you know robert benchley was being employed by mgm all that time a man with a proven track record for polishing up scripts mm -hmm. you know why didn't he get benchley and a man to who loved the marx in? brothers right he adored the marx yeah. brothers yeah so yeah good point good point yeah, let me backtrack to duck soup for a minute you know Kalmar and ruby's name 
are on top of the script and uh, they get a lot of credit. But you have to remember that there were a lot of comic minds, uh, good comic minds at work here. You had uh, the radio stuff that was brought in by Sheikman and Perrin. And, you know, as we were learning that this was quite extensive, some of the best stuff in the film was originally done for the radio show. And not only that, obviously we had Leo McCary uh, masterminding all this, and he was making up physical stuff and visual stuff on the set as they were going along. And, you know, when you look at the finished film, it's just so obvious that this thing was sliced and diced and, you know, compiled in a way that I can't imagine was in the original script. So while Kamar and Ruby certainly contributed, they were just basically part of a team here. Mm-hmm. True. And it's interesting about the Leo McCary connection. Um, I find it most interesting that he brought a Hal Roach uh, um, style to some of their scenes, especially yeah. the scene where Harpo and Chico are, are ringing the doorbell and hiding behind the bushes. That's yeah. Laurel. That's right out of Laurel and Hardy. But it's very yeah. fascinating to me to see how it was adapted for Harpo and Chico. And it yeah. works. It works very, yeah. very well. Uh, mm-hmm. So I found that very interesting. They were able to take Laurel and Hardy material. Now, could you reverse that? Could Laurel and Hardy do Marx Brother material? I don't think so. Sometimes, but it's in a scene like that, Laurel and Hardy would be earnestly trying to get into the house. Instead of playing. If, if, if they could just do it easily, they would. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would move the piano up the stairs competently if they could. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Harpo and Chico, it's about the joy of... You're absolutely right. And that's the difference. Running it out for the sheer purpose of it. That's the difference. And the mirror scene, they would, well, I don't know how Laurel and Hardy would do a mirror (laughs) scene, but. Yeah. (laughs) A funhouse mirror. (laughs) If they did, if they somehow found a way to do it, you know that they would sincerely think that they were looking at uh, actual reflections of themselves. They wouldn't Mm -hmm. be joking around like uh, the Marxists obviously are. Right, right. No, the, the Marx brothers add their anarchy to the Hal Roach, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sensibility. Thank you, Matthew. Sensibility. Thank you, Matthew. That's why your chapters are better than mine. <laughs> are, are, there are a few jokes that occur in both, like a, um, a two beers, I'll take two beers too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laurel and Hardy do that joke. Mm-hmm. I think it's in Saps at Sea, and, um, or maybe Two Tars or something. Yeah. And, uh, and it's in Night at the Opera. Mm-hmm. Um, Groucho and Chico do that. That's right. I'm interested in the idea that the the Hal Roach stuff in Duck Soup is as much a departure for the Marx Brothers as the um, sentimental stuff in A Night at the Opera. You know, um, in, in a way, both of those films are experimental and trying something else, at least in places. It's like uh, interludes of what we might call classic essential Marxian material um, woven together with something they hadn't really done before. Mm-hmm. Th- Opera has this s- structure to it. I mean, e- more so than Animal Crackers, you know. A- Animal Crackers has a plot, um, but the plot isn't expected to do any heavy lifting in terms of your evening experience. Again, it's 1930 versus 1935. Great strides have been made as far as, you know, film and uh, screenplays and all of that. Uh, it, it all it matured, and uh, Night at the Opera reflects that. By 1935, the Marx Brothers are a style unto themselves too. It's it's known, you know, coconuts. I mean, the stage version of coconuts, and I I understand and agree with your feelings about it, Nick. It's um, coconuts is like 
a play that Kaufman might have written anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel it wouldn't that be way. exactly the same. But a Kaufman satire of the Florida land boom. Mm-hmm. You know, if he hadn't been writing for the Marx Brothers, the humor would have been a little different. Mm-hmm. Characters wouldn't have been exactly the same. But he probably still would have written something about that very hot topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it feels more like Kaufman trying to figure out how to write one of his plays in a Marx Brothers way. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, it feels, um, at least in the opening night script, you know, not not what became of it as it ran and, and as it was filmed. Um, that's more like a standard sort of Kaufman satire. Um, by the time we get to Animal Crackers, it's like he, he knows what he's doing. And it occurs to me that maybe the biggest connection for Kaufman, especially between his Marx Brothers work and his non-Marx Brothers work, is that he was very good at filling a play with somebody else's personality, um, particularly people he knew. Like the whole genesis of The Man Who Came to Dinner was hey, wouldn't it be funny if Alexander Wolcott wound up at some in some house out in the heartland, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, let's do a play that puts Wolcott's personality on display. He did a little bit of that for himself in Once in a Lifetime. And mm-hmm. there's many other examples, the Dorothy Parker character in uh, Merrily We Roll Along and uh, lots of those. So I think in a way, maybe it's like, okay, I'll do for Groucho what I would do if I were filling a play with somebody else's personality. Hmm. That's an interesting point. I really find it fascinating how well Thalberg and Kaufman apparently got on. You know, they seem very strong-minded individuals who would have their own ideals of how the film should be done and how the markets should be presented. But apparently they had a good meeting of the minds. Mm-hmm. They seem to have a lot of the same ideas, actually, about the structure of a script. Um mm-hmm. I was going to say that A Night at the Opera is, uh, I prefer over Coconuts, um, uh, as far as my favorite Marx Brothers films. Uh, it's Animal Crackers all the way up to A Night at the Opera and then Coconuts. I feel that uh, Groucho especially, well, I could say Chico too. Chico is more Willy the Wop, you know, than he is our lovable Chico, you know, our, our uh, mm. very funny you know, Chico. Uh, he's underdeveloped. I feel like he's underdeveloped in the film. Uh, he also, you know. But we're going back again in a couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he needed the money. Um, but uh, Groucho, I, I, of, I often say that Groucho in Coconuts could have been played by Robert Woolsey, could have been played mm-hmm. by Walter Catlett, could have been played by Jules Tannen, any of the great uh, Jewish comedians who worked with a cigar and, you know, and made wisecracks. He wasn't fully developed Groucho. He wasn't completely comfortable in front of the cameras. Uh, And I sense that. I see it through the whole film. Do you think that's more of a performance issue or a script issue? I think it's a little of both, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think it's his best material by a long shot. And I really think his performance, he's trying to find himself in front of the camera and he has it by animal crackers. In fact, they all do. They all do. They're, I think they're a hundred percent better in animal crackers. Yeah. I also think it's a better, a much better film, uh, funnier and, and uh, more entertaining, just too long. It should have been uh, trimmed. Well, they pared it down to the essential comedy scenes before they even started filming. Unlike uh, the coconuts where they basically, film the entire show, and then cut it down in editing. And that's why that one seems so disjointed and oftentimes looks like a mess. Oh, it was forever. It was so long. I remember reading that. But you also had uh, uh, Lillian Roth, who is very easy to take. Uh, Even Hal Thompson. Is it Thompson or Thomas? 
I don't Thompson. remember. Thompson. Um, even nobody knows. But even, not even Mrs. Thompson. <laughs> yeah, but well, uh, he didn't know. Yeah. But you know, they're they're pretty much you know he's harmless, she's wonderful. Uh, mm-hmm. But then you had you know you had Oscar Shaw, uh, who looked like Polly's father. Um, Probably could have played Dracula, Matthew. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it had a lot of, other than it looking like a stage show and getting to see them do the coconuts, I don't think, uh, it's not one of my favorite films. You know, in, in preparing for this conversation, I, uh, in the last 24 hours... I took boxing lessons. Some time. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> with uh, Riskin's uh, memoir, and I, he, he reminds me... I always forget when talking about coconuts on film versus animal crackers on film and comparing them to the stage versions. And um, he really emphasizes how exhausted, how dead on their feet the Marx Brothers were when they were filming coconuts. Um, and I, I know that's true, but I don't think about it as much as I should. I, I always think about, like you were saying, Nick, their discomfort being in a silent studio and, and being in front of the camera. That's all definitely true. Um, but as, as Riskin, he talks at some length about how they were just dead. They were doing animal crackers on stage mm-hmm. every night. That alone is to more me, effort than most humans can imagine. To me, it's obvious. And then they're getting up in the, early in the morning and going to this strange place in Queens. Coconuts was filmed in the summer. There was no air conditioning. Mm-hmm. It was so hot. Mm-hmm. They were, they could barely dredge up the energy. Mm-hmm. And so, I I love the film Coconuts. I mean, I, I'm I'm closer to Matthew's take on it than to Nick's. But um, in try in in looking at them in that film and thinking, well, this is the Broadway Marx Brothers. Is this is this what it was like? You know, I hope not. No, I think it was <laughs> twice as energetic as that. Mm-hmm. Me too. I think it was. I think it was Animal Crackers. Yeah, I mean, if you look at that film and you think, if this is yeah. what they're like when they're dead on their feet. Then bloody hell. <laughs> yeah. Stand back. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I have a question just out of the blue for all of you. Uh, I'm often asked this question uh, by friends. Uh, if you could go back in time to see one live uh, act, and I don't mean a, you know what I mean, a, a comedy or, or a uh, performing act, what would it, what would it be for you? Uh, well, uh, mine's an easy answer. I, mine would be, I'll say she is. Although... If I had the opportunity to go back to 1924 and see it, I would probably realize that I've missed the mark in my adaptation and have to <laughs> <laughs> have to get back to work. But that's the that's what I would see. Uh, opening night of Aussie, she is excellent. What about you guys? I would go for the second night, but other other than that, yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> good. That probably very smart. Yeah, I would go for another show. It was closed, and I'd end up going to I'll say she is. <laughs> and then I'd fall in love with Harpo. <laughs> Bob, how about you? Yeah, you know, it really depends on whether you want to look at this from an entertainment standpoint or, uh, you know, for education. You know, on one hand, I'd love to see the Night at the Opera tour right when it started. Mm-hmm. I'd love to have seen what it was, what material they had and how it was being done, you know, before they molded it into this classic film. Mm-hmm. Um on the other hand, I'd love to have seen Animal Crackers uh, after it had been on Broadway for a couple of months, you know, and they were right at their peak. Yeah, yeah. Or uh, scenes from room service in that barn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
or the deputy sheriff uh, rehearsals or any. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't the? Isn't that what was filmed? Yeah. <laughs> Chico needed the that'd insurance. Be, It'd be unbelievably exciting to be able to go back and see, you know, home again and Mr. Green's reception. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that, and this is just the Marx Brothers. I mean, go back to, you know, opening night of Poppy with W.C. Fields or, you know. Speaking of seeing them live, I am going to take this time to again mention the Night in Casablanca Blu-ray uh, DVD set, which is coming out right around now. It's going to have on it uh, an exclusive six-minute excerpt from a performance of their road tour uh, of them on stage. And believe it or not, we have no other sound or visual record of the Marxes as a team together on stage. There's no film. There's no audio recording. We have them in pieces. We have two of them, you know, on TV shows or whatever. But as far as uh, the three main ones in front of an audience, we have nothing. This will be our very first exposure. Obviously, it's just audio, so we're not going to get much of Harpo. But it's just going to be great to be able to, to sense the energy of a Marx Brothers live show. So uh, I, I just I can't wait for that. I can't tell you how excited I am about that. I, I mean, and, and I would have paid, much more exists. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I would have paid the the price of the Blu-ray just for those six minutes. Yeah, a lifelong dream come true. I'm going to round off with an heretical or a heretical, depending on how uh, classically precise you are, suggestion, which is that uh, I came into this show firmly in the uh, Kaufman and Riskin camp in light of what I've heard and thinking particularly about how A Night of the Opera came about, I'm going to suggest this. The best Marx Brothers film that was never made uh, was... Uh, a collaboration between the two. So let's say Animal Crackers, uh, where both to both teams are contributing, but unlike A Night at the Opera, it's Kalmar and Ruby who do the rewrites and polish. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. ca- it seems we can probably conclude that Kalmar and Ruby's screenwriting strength had more to do with individual gags yeah. than than scenes and structure. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or cross-talk cross scenes as well. You know, I wanted to mm-hmm. mention something I saw. I was looking at the Marx Brothers Encyclopedia, Glenn Mitchell's great book. And under Maury Riskin's entry, there's just a little line buried in, in the middle where he talks about doing a long-distance rewrite of Monkey Business and Horse Feathers. Now, I've never heard this before. You guys know anything about this? Riskin? Yeah. I have Riskin's uh, book right here, but it has no index. Oh, oh no. no. <laughs> so, oh, neither do I. <laughs> so I can't I can't easily tell you if he makes that claim in this. Did somebody book. remove the appendix? <laughs> <laughs> they were it was right next to my Altoids. <laughs> yeah. I have reached the winter of my table of contents and there is nothing uh, nothing there either. No clue there. Um, there are some interesting and possibly self-serving claims, though. Uh, Riskin, in, in in this book, he states 
in, in no uncertain terms that Coconuts was an equal collaboration. We wrote it together. I was not Kaufman's assistant. I was his collaborator. Right. He tells a story about running into Kaufman on the street. They had known each other socially since 1919. And Kaufman says, hey, I got to write a play for the Marx Brothers. You want to work with me? And that's how it happened. But when it came time to attribute the script to somebody, it, it was Riskin's telling of the story is that it was going to be by George S. Kaufman and Maury Riskind, but Riskind adamantly argued that he shouldn't get credit for it because he only collaborated on about three quarters of it and he wasn't responsible for the original idea, so it would be morally wrong to take credit. Hmm. Which feels a little flimsy to me in this, you know, this world of multiple authorships and mm. lots of collaborations that had, you know, 60-40 or 70-30. Mm -hmm. um, so... I don't know how much, how much of a how much of an equal was Maury Riskind at that point. Kaufman seems to have once he once you earned his respect, you had it. Mm -hmm. I mean, Moss Hart famously in Act One, he he depicts their collaboration as Kaufman sort of barely tolerating him mm -hmm. right up until he starts to realize he is dealing with a formidable writer, mm -hmm. and from then on. Lots of mutual respect and and touchingly on opening night, uh, Kaufman made a curtain speech where he said something to the effect of, you know, uh, let there be dancing in the streets. Yeah. 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 But he, he gave <laughs> he gave Hart the lion's share of the credit for, mm -hmm. for making the show great. I think he had a similar thing with Riskind. If you haven't read uh, Act One by Moss Hart, you're missing out on the best book about theater ever written. Absolutely. Other than give me a thrill. <laughs> now, do you guys think it's at all possible that when Room Service was going to be adapted for the screen, that they approached both Kaufman and Riskin to do it, and that Kaufman uh, refused? Yeah, maybe, maybe. So, that's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. it, it seems, maybe this is a terrible thing to say, but it seems somewhat beneath Kaufman yeah. to adapt other playwrights' work that way. Right? Yeah, so uh, a so recent hit. You know, yeah. Also, yeah. no, I don't see. I don't see that happening. And obviously, of the ice thing was back in the running again at that point, wasn't it? So mm -hmm. yeah. it always seemed to be hovering around. Yeah, I don't buy it though. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't. I, I don't know. Hmm. Completely different thing. And you know that that brings us full circle. Did you realize that? Oh, it's all deliberate. Well, I think the name of this uh, unproduced screenplay, well, with all four of them, I think it would have been Circle Jerks. <laughs> that sounds like something that uh, John Turturro and his buddies would have made. <laughs> yes, is that what we mean by full circle? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I mean, it would have been something like a day at the Grasshoppers. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, yeah. Actually, Wheeler and Woolsey started that. Started. Um, wanted to start that trend of those nonsensical names that the Marx Brothers popularized. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Grasshoppers was also uh, thrown around for a, a movie they never made, uh, a college I film. I that somewhere. A college film. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway. a, a Wheeler and Woolsey? You know, I've always wondered how Kaufman and Riskin came up with uh, Animal Crackers for the title. You know, it really set a precedent for the rest of their Paramount film. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the Coconuts, you know, you can make a case for it making some sort of sense with that film but animal crackers you know what were they thinking there well he is he was an african hunter i guess that's mm. it yeah mm -hmm. it, it was a uh mm. some a lot of the material was about animals 
you know, and those were just the guests. But it's interesting that, that it sets so firmly so quickly, isn't it? I mean, monkey business is obviously yeah. uh, a very poor, I think, uh, attempt to imitate that, notwithstanding the fact that I think yeah. it was Olsen and Johnson tried to sue them, I think, for, for coming up with it first, as if that's some dibs on, that's the, right. That's right. on the name monkey business. But it, it seems like it, as soon as Animal Crackers happened, they thought, that's it. That's that's our title, you know. Until Irving Thalberg mm. came, along, came mm. along, and it became about a day at or a night <laughs> at, or you know, and that those became more actually more famous and more familiar with people than the nonsensical titles. Yeah, you know, uh, you always see references to them as a night at or a day at. Coconuts and Animal Crackers are very similar titles, really, though, because they both they both have a connection to the story. Coconuts for Florida and Animal Crackers for safari hunting. Uh, and yet they also have this other meaning of being sort of crazy. Mm-hmm. Coconuts, you know, we're in Florida and we're dealing with a bunch of nuts. And Animal Crackers also has that. Ah, it's crackers. It's nuts. It's, it's nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's wacky. And animal Crackers, like the food, the snack food, they were... Um, that was had a lot of currency at the time. Lots of the original ads for the stage version of Animal Crackers and the sheet music have pictures of literal Animal Crackers. So I, I think it was maybe had even more currency then than it does and now. And it's interesting that in Britain, um, Animal Crackers then and now means nothing except a Marx Brothers title. And American titles were routinely changed for the on the slightest possible, um, pre, pre, you know, reason. Uh, but for some reason, that that you know that one. Hallelujah! I'm a tramp. Yes, exactly. Yeah, right? and 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 even you know even flimsier reasons. But for some reason, that one wasn't because I I, I guess because its nonsensicality was instantly recognised. So, but Matthew, if they had anglicised the title of Animal Crackers, what would they have called it? Hmm. Well, I, I, to be honest, I don't actually know what animal crackers are. Are they are they biscuits with chocolate on top? No, they are they are plain biscuits shaped like animals. We do, we don't have that. We we have animal biscuits, which are which are kind of shortcake, very thin shortcake biscuits with chocolate on top, which prompted a brilliant joke, which I'm going to share with you by Bob Monkhouse. I don't know if any of you know who Bob Monkhouse is, British comedian, but uh, I like Bob Monkhouse. Right. So the, we we buy these biscuits, and each one is shaped like a different animal. So you get elephant shaped ones and tiger shaped ones and whatever. And Bob Monkhouse said. I bought a box of those animal biscuits and I was really looking forward to it. Uh, and then I saw on the side, it said, do not eat if seal is broken. And I opened it up and do you know what? <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent joke. <laughs> well, this is for our British fans out there. Yeah. <laughs> there must you be know. one or two. One especially. One especially. Um so, so yeah, here we are then at the end of uh, of one of those years that history will surely recall by name. And if it's true that the Marx Brothers are medicine, then it's a year well worth seeking out their company. I usually try to see at least monkey business and animal crackers over the Christmas period. And if I'm feeling really stupid, which I usually am, I try to watch them at the exact same dates and times as I first saw them in 1983. Uh, I trust you will be likewise indulging over the holiday season. Oh, it's Horse Feathers for me, uh, a Christmas broadcast of Horse Feathers. Um, when, uh, growing up in New York, I don't know, I know, Noah, you're younger than I am, but uh, the Marx Brothers were uh, quite visible 
on television during the Christmas holidays. Um, and not just the Marx Brothers. We had the embarrassment of riches of not only the Marx Brothers, but W.C. Fields as well. So it was uh, uh, two of my all-time favorites every holiday. How about you, Bob? What are you watching? Well, it's what I mentioned before, the Night Castle Blanco Blu-ray set. And I'm not just looking forward to it for the uh, special features, but for watching the film itself. You know, I'm not so familiar with this one where I know every joke that's coming up uh, three lines ahead of time. You know, I've made it a point not to become over-familiar with this one. So I'm just looking forward to sitting down and watching it again. I'm looking forward to that. And I'm also, I have, but I have not yet watched the Too Many Kisses Blu-ray Um with the house that shadows built uh, feature i it's actually sitting on my shelf and i just haven't gotten to it yet but that's definitely on my list along with the night in casablanca re-release now nick we're not going to let you out of here without you talking a little bit more about this book that you and matthew have been subtly hinting about throughout the show uh, <laughs> what's going on here what what is this <laughs> I, I thought we were being really, really subtle. <laughs> I thought so, too. <laughs> thought, yeah. Subliminal, almost. You know? <laughs> uh, well, it, it's, it's – I, I don't know about you, Matthew, because we really – we don't discuss it much. But I think we have uh, something very special in mm. this book. Uh, we have definitely uh, two different styles of writing and um, – and it's both. I can't say that either one. Uh, I, I don't know, Matthew. What do you think? I I don't think either one uh, overtakes the other in any way. They do complement mm. each other. Yeah. Uh, you did mention. You made my my month, by the way, when you mentioned the pun uh, with manacled ah. uh, from the uh, meet Captain Kid. Yeah. I, I was very proud of that. Thank you. Thank you now, when I much. say elaborate about the book, I mean. Tell us what it is. Because oh, you, oh, assume, oh, you assume oh. people know it. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Matthew, well, you take it. Okay. Well, it's <laughs> it's called the annotated Abbott and Costello. So you will instantly hear alarm bells ringing and you'll think, is there another book with a title a bit like that? Well, yes, there is. It's the annotated Marx Brothers. Uh, but this time, um, because they, Abbott and Costello made so many films, far too many for me to write about. I decided to ask the the best possible person in the world to, to co-write it with me. And because he refused, I but went to Nick. he wasn't home, so he called me. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! See, see? Oh, tough to... Simpatico. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the secret. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, you know, if you, if you know the annotated Marx Brothers, it's the same again, but with um, a comedy team that both Nick and I feel um, probably need a little more, um, what's the word? Um, respect. Respect than they, than they normally receive. Um, they, to our mind, are one of the great comedy teams of movie history. Um, and particularly, I mean, but both of them, but Lou especially, one of the probably one of the last great uh, physical and verbal comedians, a man of enormous grace, enormous charm, uh, enormous skill at delivering a line, uh, great physicality in films that, yes, are redolent of the 40s in the way that, um, you know, in a way that kind of 
is a poor cousin to comedy of the, of the 30s, but their, their, their own work in them transcends it. Uh, I sense I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going downwards into ever-decreasing circles here, but, but, but Abbott and Costello have always given me an enormous amount of pleasure from, from when I was about 10 or so when I first saw them. And I've always been irritated that they're thought of as country cousins to Laurel and Hardy. Um, I, I prefer them. I do too. There's a slight edge for me. I love Laurel and Hardy. Don't get me wrong. And uh, cinematically, they were probably the best of the comedy teams, cinematically. Uh, but as far as performance, as far as timing, as far as uh, more versatility, I would go with Abbott and Costello. Uh, and like you say, Matthew, mostly because of Lou, I'm learning as we look at the films uh, and we're looking at them chronologically, which is very interesting. Uh, but when I look at the films, I notice that some of them could have been made without Bud Abbott. It could have been any fast talking character actor, uh, but you could not play, replace Lou Costello mm-hmm. under any stretch of the imagination. So uh you know, when they're together and boy, and when they're on fire, there's nothing like it. There's nothing mm. like it, even more so than the Groucho Chico scenes. No offense. But Abbott and Costello were yeah. the crosstalk comedians. Mm. Um, and one of the incidental uh, benefits of the of the annotated format, which, you know, this book kind of fell into. It wasn't uh, designed for this team. It was designed for the Marx Brothers. But it enables you to to look at their work scene by scene. And again, there's nothing new about this. This is what Joe Adamson does in, in Groucho Chico. He, he, he says he doesn't have favourite films. He has favourite scenes. And he goes through the, through the work scene by scene rather than film by film. But when you do that with Adam Costello... Uh, and you look at, at specific moments and you think, my God, you know, if this was in a film from 1930 or 1925, mm-hmm. you'd be saying this guy is 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 another Chaplin, is another Keaton, you know. And because the trappings, That's exactly right. the trappings are very 1940s and very big band, a very Glenn Miller and, and brash and war boogie era, boogie yeah. woogie, you, you, you can almost, if you just think of them as films, you almost lose sight of these moments, which we are able to isolate in the book, um, of, of exceptional comic skill. Mm-hmm. And this is coming out uh, next week, maybe? Oh. It will be next year. We guarantee it will be next year. Uh, whether it's the first first quarter or the second or the third or the fourth, I, I'm not sure. Nick is ahead of me. Nick is almost finished on his half. Um, I've got what? I've got Keystone Cops. Yeah. Uh, Dance with me, Henry, and the Thirty Foot Bride of Candy Rock. You lucky man. <laughs> <laughs> and then the chapter on me and Lou, on my relationship with Lou Costello. Um, Noah, tell us a bit about your uh, your brush with the ancients. Uh, well, yes, my most recent work um, is uh, um, it's an adaptation of Antigone that uh, I created with Amanda Sisk, my uh, my partner in life and art, um, and it's an Antigone for the era of coronavirus. It's called Quarantigone, um, and uh, it had its streaming premiere uh, earlier uh, this month, and um, it's on YouTube now. It's available to anyone who wants to see it. It's a little more than an hour. It's a, it's on one hand a faithful adaptation of Sophocles' original play, um, but 
with jokes. It's uh, if if Sid Caesar's writers' room had taken a pass at Antigone, mm-hmm. um, it it would have been much more brilliant than this. But that's the general idea. Um, and uh, yeah, it's um, I'm I'm quite proud of it, and it's partly because of the conditions under which we're working these days, trying to do virtual theater and streaming theater and and plays via Zoom. Uh, it's unlike anything else that I've been involved with, mm-hmm. um, especially in terms of its visual presentation, because it, it has the largest cast we've ever worked with, um, but they're all remote. You know, everyone's in their individual boxes. And it features a Greek chorus of dozens all speaking in unison, which was an, a, quite a feat of um, both performance and editing to sync up uh, this Greek chorus. So yeah, I would definitely encourage anybody who's listening to to check it out. It's it's not Marx Brothers specific, except in the sense that they are some influence on. You know, if I if I were to if I make dinner tonight, it'll show the influence of the Marx Brothers in some way. <laughs> but I do play Creon, the ruler of Thebes, and mm-hmm. he is a blustery authority figure. Um, so there may be a, a moment or two there that feels Groucho-esque to some. Um, and Amanda plays uh, the title role of Antigone uh, beautifully, and um, everyone in it. Also, I'll say she is fans uh, will recognize some familiar faces. Seth Sheldon, who played Harpo, uh, he plays the guard, um, and Kathy Beale is in the chorus, and some uh, members of the 2016 I'll Say She Is uh, chorus are in the Greek chorus here. So that's, that's my latest project, and now I'm just kind of... Uh, I've got my head down to uh, sort of get through the holidays and uh, get active again next year. Well, I don't have a book in the works, but I do have something better. And it's another passion project, like much like this podcast. And I've been preparing this, and I think it's time to let everybody know that this week I am going to be preparing my first ever Chicago deep dish pizza. So <laughs> be on the lookout for that, folks. Yum. Ooh. If you were a Marx brother, you'd be Uno. <laughs> nice. Nice. Good one. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, are we going to see some uh, documentation, Bob, mm. of not only the results, but the process? Uh, keep your Twitter feed open. That's all I could say. All right. <laughs> and feed is the proper word. <laughs> And lastly, Nick, imagine some crazy, unlikely possibility that somebody might want to to learn about film comedy from you. Oh. There's no way they could do that, is there? Oh, but wait. (laughs) There's more. Um, (laughs) Thank you, Matthew. That was kind of you. I'm going to make it simple. I have a a new website. It's called nicksantamaria.com. I thought of it myself. Um, It's all lowercase, one word. And uh, it's a wonderful website built for me by my girlfriend, Noelle, who lives in Surrey. Um, Uh And uh, it has all the information you need about my comedy course, For the Love of Laughter. Uh, You could also see Biffle and Schuster uh, material there and how to get that. And everything else, basically, in in the Nick world. So go to my website. Check it out. www.nicksantamaria.com. And you plan on getting a haircut uh, soon? (laughs) <laughs> no, you know i d- haven't had my haircut since late october of last year yeah you got like a, a ron jeremy thing going oh no please don't say that okay. i actually have had dealings with ron jeremy okay. and it wasn't pretty i don't want to hear about that <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> oh, I could go on. Uh, I could actually Don't be one of the people in his trial. <laughs> I could actually like uh, okay. speak at his trial. I know enough stuff. All right. <laughs> that's that's a poor excuse for not getting a haircut. <laughs> no, that's a porn excuse for not getting a haircut. <laughs> I'm impressed with the uh, thank you the flowing locks, Nick. I think it looks fantastic. Thank you. Noah. Your girlfriend may live in Surrey, but you, my friend, have a fringe on top. <laughs> oh, 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 Oklahoma. Oh, K L A H O M A. Very good, Noah. Um, but anyway, so this has been a delight. Thank you so much for inviting me again. I hope I'm invited back for the Love Happy chapter. I have a lot to say about Love Happy. Ah. You want to do that one by yourself? Yes. <laughs> Just call me Harpo. <laughs> Thus, the whirly gig of time brings in its revenges, and we've reached the end of another podcast. Do please continue to like, comment, share, and spread the word far and wide. And we will be back next year with 12 more of these darn things. We promise plenty of surprises, it says here, and more unmissable guests. Until then, it only remains to thank you for listening in. And here's Nick with our final song. Tell me, dear... Why am I so romantic? When you're near, why am I so romantic? What a grand feeling when your lips touch mine. A certain something comes stealing up and down my spine. When we pet closer, your arms will hold me. I forget all that my mother told me. Other girls bore me, they just leave me blue. But why am I so romantic? Why am I feeling frantic? Why am I so romantic with you? Marx Brothers Council Podcast is hosted by Matthew Conium, Noah Diamond, and Bob Gassell, and is produced and edited by Bob Gassell. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by leaving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. Matthew Conium's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers and That's Me Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of Alsatias, is published by Bear Manor Media. Both can be found at major book outlets. Please visit our website at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. We'll see you next time.